hello everyone. Welcome to Jowl of the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. On this episode, we are analyzing Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper from 1982. In this movie, New York City is a place of misogyny, cynical detectives, cheap porno movies, and a serial killer who guts innocent women and quacks like a duck. We will discuss the history of New York horror as my guest brings his extensive knowledge of slasher films to this month's episode. To help me dive deeper into the New York Ripper, I am joined by YouTube film reviewer and horror content creator, who you may know better as Slasher Movie Reviews. Welcome back to the podcast, Dylan Tillman. Oh, it's so great to be back. It's great to finally see you again. I know with the world being what it is, uh, it's just great to finally get to be able to see you in person or through a screen. Virtually. <laughs> just, you know, because uh, it's been way too long. It has been so long. So you were on Stage Fright episode last year, which was awesome. And you did a really great deep dive into slasher films. For this episode, like I mentioned, we're talking all about New York mm-hmm. and ripping. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. A lot of ripping. A lot of ripping, a lot of slashing. <laughs> all checks all the boxes for this slasher aficionado. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a great October movie bloody and gory luckily because it is the spooky season i just it's a great time for me to just consume what i want to consume september is always chaos month because i'm always covering festivals and doing all sorts of stuff so october i love it because it's like chill month i get to watch what i want to watch i'm actually getting ready to head to halloween horror nights for the first time so i've been re-watching the haunting of hill house to get ready to experience all of that so i recently as a massive slasher fan um i will literally watch anything um i have been getting like spoiled this month because it's like all the slasher icons are back pretty much and my boy jason is finally being released from courtroom hell it seems Mm -hmm. like you know so uh, i've been watching all the shows i've been watching chucky and adoring that i've been hate watching the new i know what you did last summer series on amazon that is brutal. Uh, I, like everyone else, went and saw Halloween Kills. Um, okay. I am, yes, I am massively in the minority with Halloween Kills. I know a lot of people have a lot of problems with it. I was like cinema in the theaters. Like, mainly just because as much as I love the shows, they're not why I go watch Halloween. I go watch Michael Myers killing people. And my God, does he, it lives up to the title, truly. It is Halloween Killing. I I loved it. I loved it. And I didn't hate the mob stuff in that movie. So I'm over here chuckling to myself because (laughs) I'm in the opposite. (laughs) I I am shocked, like, how much I loved Halloween Kills. Because Halloween, as much as a slasher fan as I am, they have some terrible installments. There's very few Halloween films that I'm, like, very, very passionate about. But for some odd reason, Halloween Kills is like my H2. It is like, it's like, I don't know why I am passionate about defending Halloween Kills. Uh, yeah, I've been rewatching that movie as many times as possible. I, I think- love, I do love the kills in that movie. And I, I love that throughout, you know, the entire series or, you know, most of the series, it's always been Lori and Michael and, you know, the cat and mouse between that. And then this one is, oh, no, he's just psycho and he will kill literally anyone. And it's brutal. And I love that. 
I love the flashbacks. I loved, of course, the Jim Cummings surprise cameo. I was like, oh my God, it's Jim Cummings. Like I saw it all by myself. And then I looked around like, did anyone else recognize who that was? I let me tell you the audible gasp that happened in the theater. Like no one was like, nothing scary happened. What do y'all chill? Like I was literally like full on fangirl because just like a week prior to that, me and our good friend Blair, who's a mutual friend from all of us, we actually ran into Jim like at Fantastic Fest. So like, it was just like, oh my God, it's just like, we keeping the hype going. So loved all the flashback stuff, loved all the kills. And my favorite thing is as a slasher fan, a lot of times I sometimes watch slasher movies the way a comic book fan would watch an MCU film. So Mm -hmm. for me, I enjoyed how like almost diabolically evil this movie is, like how it will kill somebody and then it will just like linger on. Like a woman gets killed by a light bulb and is kind of watching... Michael stab her husband with yeah. knives as she just bleeds out to death. I was just like, this Brutal. movie is mean, mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I, I, I somewhat get the hate, but from some odd reason, I don't know why I just am a massive Halloween kills defender. Um, so I, yeah, I've just been consuming all the slashers. And so I'm at my, I'm living my best life right now. <laughs> I watched the season opener of the Chucky series. I haven't caught up with the last episode, but I am super interested to see where it's going. I love the team behind it. My friend Felicia Mancini, she owns a company called Girls With Guns, and it's a horror boutique shop. Felicia and her sister did wardrobe on the Chucky series because it was a Toronto film series. So I watched it, of course, in support of my friend and then, of course, in support of all the Mancinis. I think Chucky is a really fun character, also brutal. It's entertaining. Absolutely. I think that they are completely knocking it out of the park. Like episode two was even better than the pilot episode. So I'm just like absolutely on board with what they're doing with this show. And I I need it to get booked for another season because I am so happy with it. And then to go and watch the completely CW disaster that is the I know what you did last summer show. Like, I don't even know what is going on. I'm going to finish it, but I am hate watching every second of it. I am. (laughs) I hate it so much. Are all the episodes out or is it week by week? It's a week by week. So they gave us the first four episodes, but every Friday there's like the new episode. Um, Those first four episodes took me all day to get through. It was bad. It is like so it's unpredictable. I will give it that. It's unpredictable, but it is like. Does it make sense? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make. It's one of, also one of those movie shows where they have like, and this isn't a spoiler. Um, it's very hard to watch because the main actress plays two people. She's got a twin sister, and the way you can tell that they're different is by their eyeshadow. So I hope you're watching and staring at their eyes because that's the only real way you can tell is by their eyeshadow and maybe a little bit of color in the hair. It is bad. It is bad. I it no no so I'm 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 hate watching that and then I'll <laughs> put on Halloween Kills to cleanse the palate. <laughs> In between every episode, just watch Halloween Kills. Exactly. Did you see Titan? I did. I finally saw it on Saturday. I have a lot of thoughts. I will say I love French cinema. Ballsy, ballsy movie. (laughs) 
I enjoyed it. And I walked out of the theater thinking, well, that'll be the last time I have sex with a car. Right? (laughs) I'm not going to do that anymore because bad things happen. We saw Raw together. Mm -hmm. um, And also at Fantastic Fest, we learned that the car is female. Um, Don't know, understand but who cares, I guess? Because um, it's just a ballsy movie. And no one really does truly ballsy movies like The French. And I realize that every time I watch a new French film, because that movie is just out there and you think it's one thing and then it turns to be another thing. And uh, there's a lot of dancing in it, shockingly. And yeah, no, that movie was an experience. I saw it like an early showing on Saturday and I just walked walked out of the theater. Yeah, I just walked out of the theater to like a beautiful day in DC. Um, I have been doing a 31 Days of Horror. So it's like every day it's been something. I recently watched a Friday 13th fan film called 13 Fanboy, which has so many returning stars from all the Friday 13th films. So people who played all the previous Tina's, Dee Wallace is in it, Corey Feldman's in it. Oh. Um, it. Yeah, you know, because of the lawsuit, fans were getting sick of not having a film. So they're like, well, we're just going to keep making our own until then. We're doing it for free. I actually watched it in the cinema. And I think they released it in the cinema because the lawsuit had found the conclusion. Like, oh, we can put stuff out in the cinemas again. So literally, I was leaving the theater from seeing Cinematic Achievement Dune, and then I see a poster for $5 13 Fanboy that you can go see, and I'm like, to all the future ladies out there, if you want me at Dune, you gotta have me at 13 Fanboy, (laughs) because I was like, I've got to go see this tomorrow, and I did. I went to the cinemas, and I had a blast. It was my Avengers Endgame. It was like, I'm seeing all these actors that I have grown up with watching in all these Friday 13 films work in this $5 movie that looks like shit but i don't care i am here for it so i've been watching that and i've been telling everyone about it because it is an experience it's about a guy who's obsessed with friday the 13th and he's been writing all these fan mails to all these actors and like they play themselves in this movie except for cory feldman he plays like a a character which makes no sense but who cares that sounds very cory feldman of him Every time they show up, they get little title cards like D. Wallace and all the Friday the 13th films or all the roles that they've been like Cujo and all that stuff. And he's been writing them fan mails about, oh, I love you. Please write me back. And no one ever writes him back. So, of course, he puts on a $5 mask from Party City and (laughs) starts killing them. He's like, I was your biggest fan. And I'm like, wow. um." That's amazing that I, I mean, I don't even know who the do you know who the filmmaker is like offhand? Deborah Voorhees. Is the director of the film. Her name okay. is Voorhees. So it just gets better and better. Well, I mean, I was just thinking it's so impressive to get, like, all of these notable horror actors to sign up for something like this. And it's a fan, like, a fan film. Exactly. Now, it was it had a Kickstarter. And I'm pretty positive that Kickstarter went to be able to get people like Dee Wallace and all them in it. It looks like they shot it on, like, Black Magic, but they only had maybe one light. For some of the horror set pieces at night. Because <laughs> at times I'm like, what is going on? I can't oh, see Oh, man. It. So it's called 13 Fanboy? Yeah, it's called 13 right. Fanboy. You might catch it at your local art house or something. They, uh, they're probably able to get away with playing it there. Mm-hmm. Rewatch Strangers Pray at Night. Love that movie. Fun. 
like I said, I have just been consuming all things slashers. Halloween's about to come here, so it's like I can't wait to watch Friday Thirteenth, uh, Part Six, Jason Lives. That's like my go-to. I have to watch this on Halloween night type of movie. So I've just been rewatching that. I watched Freddy versus Jason. You know, always Team Jason. The right person won. Just oh, love- we're an opposite. We're an opposite ends of that one. I know. You know uh, why? I mean. Obviously, I love Freddy and Wes Craven, so of course that's who I'm for. Yeah, Jason's my favorite slasher, so he can do no wrong. So every time I see him, I'm just like, yes, absolutely. You're like, that's my man's. (laughs) That is my man. If you see him stabbing a machete in me, officer, do not arrest him. He, I had it coming. Um, You might have asked for it. Who knows? I absolutely asked for it. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the New York Ripper. A burned out New York police detective teams up with a college psychoanalyst to track down a vicious serial killer, randomly stalking and killing promiscuous young women on the streets of Manhattan. 1982's The New York Ripper represents the exact moment in which the great Italian horror master Lucio Fulci transforms into the schlocky filmmaker Lucio Fulci who just one year prior had wrapped up his celebrated Gates of Horror trilogy with The Beyond and The House by the Cemetery. The New York Ripper includes such jollo elements as creepy phone calls, incompetent police, and gratuitous sex and nudity. A lot of it. Lots of it. Uh, More than you can imagine. (laughs) This is your spoiler warning. The New York Ripper is currently available on Shudder, Tubi, and Canopy. The film was originally set to feature a serial killer afflicted by rapid progeria. Progeria is also known as Hutchinson-Guilford syndrome. It's a progressive genetic disorder that causes children to age rapidly, starting in their first two years of life. Hence making our would-be killer very difficult for the police to catch because his appearance changed a lot rapidly. That's not really how it works. But that's... Originally, that's the killer. He was supposed to have progeria. The original script was written by Gianfranco Clarici and Vincenzo Manino. This original script would later be made in a slightly toned-down version by Ruggiero Diodato in 1988 as Phantom of Death. Later, the original screenplay was altered by Dardano Sacchetti, and this became the film known as The New York Ripper. We have a killer who... Hmm. Quacks like a duck. Yeah, quacks like a duck. We'll we'll get to that. (laughs) The New York Ripper was released on March 4th, 1982 in Italy. The film was shot on location in New York with interiors filmed in Rome. Prior to the release of the film, Lucio Fulci discussed the production, describing it much less horror than his previous films. There's no zombies, but a human killer working in the dark. Fulci described the film as a tribute to Alfred Hitchcock, billing it as Hitchcock Revisited, a fantastic film with a plot, hmm, mm. violence, and sexuality. Okay, the last two I can I can see. Yeah. Hitchcock Revisited. Um, <laughs> Deridano Sacchetti was one of Fulci's key creative collaborators at the time. He stated that much of the film's sexual content came from Fulci, claiming that Fulci nurtures a profound sadism towards women. The more you know. (laughs) 
this is your trigger warning. The quantity and degree of violence in the New York Ripper is extreme, enough to get the film banned in the UK during the video nasties days, and it could not be sold or owned until 2002 in the United Kingdom. The New York Ripper is an exercise in watching brutal acts of highly creative violence against women. It's a torture porn film before anyone even like thought of that term. <laughs> and uh, yes, this is your trigger warning. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, this movie checks all the boxes. Yeah, it's not for the weak of stomach, or if you are, I mean, I'm, of course, against violence against women, but I can separate, you know, a movie from realism. But if it's something that you are very sensitive towards, I would shy away from watching this film. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I would describe this movie as very exploitation. Uh, I think it very much fits. It checks all the boxes that you would see in an exploitation film, um, particularly of that of the Ed Wood era of exploitation, as we're, you know, like, we're going to have sex and we're not going to justify it at all, but we're going to have sex. And this character is also going to, you know, do what they do while they watch this sex unfold. (laughs) Sleazy. Sleazy, yes, which is why I kept writing the word Sleazy. I mentioned this at the top of the episode that we are recording virtually. So if there's any lag with our audio or sometimes when you record via Skype, if you talk or laugh or comment over each other, it cuts out the audio. So listeners, I apologize in advance that Skype is not the best. We have a lot to say and let's get into the cast of the film. So we have a lot of cast members. A few people simply show up for one scene, get killed, and that's it. I mean, a typical, like, slasher, jalo horror, like, it just happens. We have, as our lead, maybe protagonist, Jack Headley as Lieutenant Fred Williams. He's an English actor who's mostly known for television, but he's sort of our main character, mm-hmm. if any. I would say that Fred Williams, who I'll just call Williams through the synopsis, he is our main character. Uh, Then we have a character named Faye Majors, played by Amanda Suska in her first acting role, which that's pretty impressive because Fulci had many films under his belt. And that's your first acting role is in a Fulci film, which that's awesome. Um, We have. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. Mm hmm. We have Andrea Acapinta, who plays Peter Bunch. You can find this actor on Lombardo Baba's A Blade in the Dark. Daniela Dora is Kitty. She plays Kitty the Prostitute. She's been in quite a few Fulci films, such as City of the Living Dead, The Black Cat, The House by the Cemetery. So she's probably the most notable actor if you have seen any Italian horror films. Then we have Howard Ross, who plays Mickey Scalinda. I don't... I feel like everyone in this, mostly everyone in this movie is like kind of sleazy. Again, the word of the day, sleazy. Um, and then lastly, we have Lucio Fulci as the chief of police. Gotta <laughs> love that director cameo. Yep. Well, remember, this is Alfred Hitchcock. So it, he had to make a cameo. He had to. Let's dive into the New York Ripper. All right. This is the beginning of the movie. Bear with me. Could get confusing. A decomposed human hand is found in New York City. This scene is very important because it is a golden retriever that finds the hands. 
<laughs> There's immediately a cute dog, which you know I love. Um, yeah, so this dog is playing fetch with its owner, brings back a severed hand. The severed hand is identified by the police as belonging to Ann Lynn, a local model. Lieutenant Fred Williams, the burned-out police detective investigating the murder, interviews the young woman's nosy landlady, who tells him that during her daily spying and eavesdropping on her tenants, she overheard the girl on the phone arranging to meet a man who spoke with a strange duck-like voice. Nosy neighbors, that's kind of a jollo trope. Duck voice is not. (laughs) No, that is bulgy right there. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Then we transition to the next scene. So we're on the Staten Island Ferry, which, again, very New York. On the ferry, a young woman is gutted with a switchblade as she attempts to vandalize a car. She's vandalizing this car because earlier in her trip to the ferry... She ran into the guy's car, and then he called her, you have brains like a chicken, and then she said, you have brains like an asshole. The exchange was very strange. And then she said, chow, and then she just biked off. So we have this young woman who is gutted with a switchblade. The pathologist who conducts the autopsy tells Lieutenant Fred Williams that the style of the murder was similar to that of the last body found the one with the severed hand, as well as a similar case in Harlem the previous month. A good, efficient butchering, according to the pathologist. When Williams tells the press about a potential serial killer being on the loose, the chief of police, Lucio Fulci, orders him to not make any further public announcements, because duh, (laughs) about the case to avoid starting a citywide panic. Williams hires psychoanalyst Dr. Paul Davis to advise on the case. That's smart on his part to bring someone else in because, of course, typical Jalo police, kind of incompetent. Mm-hmm. So let's bring someone in that has like a little bit of brains who can psychoanalyze what this killer is actually doing and the motive. I don't think he was used enough. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. So Paul Davis, that's Dr. Paul Davis is the psychoanalyst. That same night in New York's red light district, Jane Lodge attends a live sex show and records the simulated moans and groans of the two performers with a pocket tape recorder. (laughs) That is a scene. It is in the movie. Yeah, that scene is straight up porno. Straight up. Every time I have seen this movie twice now. And every time that scene, I swear, it gets longer. It gets longer. I'm telling you, on a second viewing, it is a lot longer than it was the first viewing. I am certain on it. And it could be because you were probably analyzing it for the podcast. Absolutely was. And I just was like, this scene is still going. There was a lot going on. Yes. It it went on for a while. And again, it was straight up. It was a porno. Like, there was no, like artsy cutting it was just two people having sex and then this lady moaning and touching herself in the seats yeah this is when we also exactly so this is when we also meet mickey scalinda he's a scruffy dangerous looking man with two fingers missing on his right hand who sits nearby and observes what she's doing i mean how could you not observe like she was making a scene After the show has ended, the female performer of the sex show is brutally killed by the maniac. 
she is sliced with a broken bottle in the vagina? Is is that correct? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. That whole scene is pretty much uh, the killer takes a wine bottle, puts it where the sun don't shine, and just keeps going deep further, 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 okay. and she dies. I was making sure I saw that right. I didn't want to assume anything. Okay, so yes, uh, yeah. broken bottle, she was stabbed in the vagina uh, until she died. <laughs> Later that night, while at the apartment of Kitty, a prostitute he knows, Lieutenant Fred Williams receives a taunting phone call from the duck voice killer saying that he is killed again. Our lead, Lieutenant Fred Williams, is not the most likable guy. I mean, he's doing some sketchy stuff. He's meeting with prostitutes. He is putting, like, the case on blast of the press when, like, you should not do that. Basic common police sense. I don't know. This guy's just not very likable. Next up, a young woman named Faye is attacked by a handsome, razor-blade-wielding killer, but she survives. She is comforted in the hospital by her handsome boyfriend, Peter. She tells him that... After she was attacked, she had a dream that he was the person that attacked her. They got me with that kill because when I was taking notes, I numbered the kills. So when she was being killed, I numbered that. I think it was the third on-screen kill. And then it's a dream sequence. Yeah. And it's weirdly done, too, because it's like, okay, well, where did the dream stop and where did yeah. we end? Yes, because she's in the subway, and then she, like, opens the door, and then she's in the movie theater, or the porno theater, the sex show theater. She's back. We're back there, unfortunately. Unfortunately, didn't think we would return there, but we have. We did, but there wasn't anything going on, so, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Faye tells Williams that she suspects her attacker was a scruffy, dangerous-looking man who was missing two fingers on his right hand. Hmm, who's that sound like? Jane continues to prowl New York for sexual experiences. Jane is the woman who was recording her moans at the sex show. After being molested in a pool hall slash restaurant? I don't know. There were, like, feet involved and two men, like, harassing the shit out of her. And that was probably the scene that made me the most uncomfortable. Yeah, I would agree. It was gross. Jane picks up Skelenda, they go to a sleazy hotel room and engage in some BDSM. (laughs) As he is taking a post-coital nap, Jane overhears a radio DJ describing the killer, who the press has now dubbed the New York Ripper. They dub the New York Ripper as missing two fingers on his right hand. The radio radio DJ does a shout out to the killer. He says, Ripper, leave those women alone. (laughs) I made a note about that. Thanks, DJ. I hope the Ripper hears that and he stops. Yeah. (laughs) So Jane is tied up in this hotel room, napping next to our supposed killer. She slips out of the room, only to be stabbed repeatedly and killed by the New York Ripper, who clearly is not this guy who is napping in the other room. Lieutenant Fred Williams identifies Skelenda as the eight-fingered killer, a Greek immigrant with a history of sexual assault and drug abuse. 
Although Dr. Paul Davis doubts that Scalenda is intelligent enough to be a serial killer, his concerns are right when Scalenda attempts to kill Faye in her home before being chased off by her boyfriend, Peter. This was a kind of a confusing scene to me because she goes like upstairs into a room and she's like snooping, snooping through things, mm-hmm. finds something that we don't really get a long take of like a piece of paper. I didn't know what the piece of paper like was at first because it doesn't linger on it enough. But then the killer comes in. Scalenda comes in and tries to kill her. It's how, how does he know that she's the one that like, no pun intended, like fingered him as the killer. At this no. point, we don't ask questions. We're just enduring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're right, Dylan. You're correct. A week later, Lieutenant Fred Williams receives a phone call from the Ripper who wants to dedicate a murder to him. After being delayed by a false lead involving a payphone and walkie-talkie, Williams realizes the Ripper's target is Kitty the prostitute. Williams arrives too late to prevent her gruesome murder. Kitty is gutted from sternum to stomach and left to bleed out in her bed. I like that scene where they're tracking the phone call. And then I'm like, there's no way this guy is going to get caught. You know what I failed to mention is that the killer (laughs) keeps calling people stupid. Yeah. He calls them in his Donald Duck voice and calls, like, everyone stupid. Wow, the balls on this killer. So later on, Skalinda's body is found. He apparently committed suicide by suffocation. The pathologist tells Williams that Scalenda was dead for several days prior to Kitty's murder, proving that he could not be the Ripper. So that's like our first red herring. Mm-hmm. Then it's proven that there's no way because he was dead long before like the phone calls happened and long before Kitty was murdered. And then this is the part of the movie where buckle up, where the killer changes every five minutes. Where, like, for the rest of the movie, like, they're just like, well, we're going to go down the the cast of where everyone at one point could have been the killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is our climax. Uh, yeah. Where, yes, every single person does something sketchy where Fulci wants you to think that they are the killer. Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I will I will give him credit. Every time I thought, well, maybe this person is actually the killer because I even at one point was like, are they actually like I had seen it before and I was watching for a second time and even I had forgotten who the killer was. So at one point I was like, oh, is this like a malignant type of storyline? Like did James Wan take it from this? Malignant. (laughs) Let's talk about malignant soon. Oh, man. Before we get to this climax, I just want to note that. This couple, the Faye, the one that was attacked in, like, the dream sequence, and she's in the hospital, and she was, like, her handsome boyfriend, Peter, they're, like, the corniest couple ever. Mm. They're just so corny. There's things that they say to each other that no one would ever say, like, in real life. Like, he's like, I never thought I would date a woman with an IQ of blah, blah, blah number. I get you're saying it because you want us to think she's smart and intelligent enough to be a serial killer, but... Y'all corny. (laughs) Super corny. So corny. This is our climax. 
Dr. Paul Davis completes a profile of the killer, an intelligent young man who hates young, sexually active women, and followed Scalinda to identify his victims. So our killer followed that gross, sleazy guy that was murdered in the last scene. The New York Ripper has a distaste for women who trade their bodies, a model, a prostitute, a performer in a stage sex show, a bored, privileged housewife drawn towards the sleazy sexual streets of Manhattan. The Ripper isn't content to just kill. He mutilates these women, carves them apart. Investigators gradually piece clues together. From Scalinda's missing fingers to his penchant for squawking like Donald Duck in the throes of his bloodlust. The Ripper is insane, but deviously brilliant. He's always several steps ahead of the police. Realizing this describes Peter, Williams and Davis begin to follow him and Faye. They discover that Peter has a daughter named Susie. Where did Susie come from? Why wasn't she mentioned before? Why does Faye and Peter look like they're 25 years old? Does he really have, like, 11-year-old daughter? That whole scene, I was so confused. I was like, who is this? Like, did I miss a scene? Yes. In this movie? No. I mean, like, no, you did not. <laughs> yeah. She literally shows up, and I'm like, who is this girl missing an arm and a leg? And I, I was like, I miss so much. What is going on? So I thought that when they show Susie in the hospital room, I thought that was a flashback to Faye's childhood. And then I had to, like, then Faye was in the next scene. And I'm like, but wait, she has, like, an arm and a leg. Like, she's she has all of her limbs. That's not her. Yeah. Keep in mind, also, the nurse is making animal noises. So I'm And it's panning out. So I'm thinking, wait a minute. Is this the killer? Like, does this killer have this victim? And it's just like, and like, oh, it's just a nurse. So even the nurse is now a suspect. <laughs> this extra nurse is a this suspect. This innocent nurse giving up her <laughs> her evenings to work the late shift with this terminally ill child. <laughs> oh, so many red herrings. So Susie, Peter's daughter, is terminally ill, and she is seen in a hospital bed surrounded by Donald Duck merchandise. Believing Faye and Peter to be the killers, Williams goes to their house to arrest them. There he discovers Peter attempting to kill Faye and shoots him in the head. Before the scene, there's another fake out in Red Herring where they say Faye has some kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know, she has anxiety or something. And then she looks at a knife weird. Fulci wants you to think. Faye's the killer, but really, it's Peter? Yeah. So, like, yeah, this whole sequence, I was like, this is when I went, like, oh, is this a malignant moment where it's, like, she's the killer because she's got some mental thing where she's, like, clocked out? Like, is this is this what we've got going on here? Red herring. Yeah. So, until this moment, I still was thinking, <laughs> I was like, was that Faye in that hospital bed? <laughs> I still, I still did not like, it just was not clear to me that that was a current scene and that that was Peter's daughter. Here we go. Peter is shot in the head by, by <laughs> Williams. Although seemingly harmless, polite, caring, and intelligent at first, Peter had a dark secret. He stalks and murders sexually active women out of hatred towards them. 
His hatred comes from the fact that his daughter is dying from a rare illness and won't ever get to experience adulthood and life that his victims are living. Peter's goal is to kill as many women as possible and avenge his dying daughter. Dr. Paul Davis explains to Faye that Peter resented her and other women for enjoying a life that his daughter never would. This is a bummer ending. From her hospital room, Peter's daughter Susie attempts to call him on the phone, but she receives no answer. The end. A motion picture, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. The motive I am okay with. Yes, same here. It, it makes sense. I just wish that throughout the film there would have been little pieces leading towards that motive that would have made the film so much better to me is that like if the, at the beginning there was like some clue because we don't have any clue that peter has a daughter so that it wouldn't have spoiled anything because we don't know that he has a daughter i don't know but let's talk about the music of the film <laughs> The music is by Francesco Damasi. He has over 137 films on his resume. The opening track is called New York One More Day, and it introduces us to the main theme, and it's repeated in other tracks. Individual songs in the film that also are mixed in with this main theme, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of the music is kind of like slow, mellow jazz. I think, you know, it's very Italian. It's it's nothing out of the ordinary for a Jalo, which this is a Jalo slasher. I mean, yeah. It's not it's not your like typical Jalo, so I think the music is not your typical music. Yeah, I think it um definitely fits a lot of the Jalo bill, mainly just with the whole like mystery element. Like it's not got no supernatural elements going on. It's you know trying to uncover a killer. It's got all it's got the crazy Jalo cinematic flares that it likes to do, especially the colors and the fast zooms and stuff like that. All that is present throughout this film, but it does have the sort of like the killers going around killing victims one by one by one. That is the trademark and format of every slasher movie ever. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the cinematography, like with the, the particular shots and like the fast zoom ins. The cinematography was by Luigi Caveller who did A Lizard in a Woman's Skin and Deep Red, which there's also a nod to Deep Red in this film, where they mentioned the psychic Helga from Deep Red, which I thought was cool. I realized that before I saw who did the cinematography, so I like that little um, jello within a jello. It was pretty cool. New York was a hard place in the 70s and 80s, and Fulci's vision of the city is a concentrated version of uh, just scum and... <laughs> just grossness of every establishment rolled into one. I think that even if the cinematography is very beautiful or very on point, it really gives a realistic look to the city, which of course is probably because it was actually filmed in New York, which that helped. Yeah, just grimy. And that's how I've been describing this movie when I've been keep trying to keep it secret to the listeners. I've been saying it's a grimy giallo, like it's gross, it's dirty. I don't want to say like sleazy because I think that might give it away. Grimy Jalo, Grimy City. I think the cinematography did its job. I also noted that like I thought it was interesting how we are getting an, an outsider's perspective of 
the biggest city in all of, you know, America where like thousands of people hearken to. So I did find that interesting, you know, watching his sort of like disgusted view of the ni- of the 70s and 80s of craziness that was New York. Like if you are a pro New Yorker, stay away from the New York Ripper cuz this movie does not paint a very happy picture of New York. That's different from a lot of Italian cinema that's depicting the U.S. where they typically, like, romanticize it. Mm-hmm. This one is gritty and grimy and, like, true to what Manhattan was <laughs> in in that decade. Yeah, very interesting point about an outsider's perspective, I think. Yeah, it adds to that, that grittiness. I think that he did not romanticize New York at all. He was depicting the grossest, darkest parts of it. Overall, what did you think of the New York Ripper? You know, it is uh, it is a hard toss coin because when it comes to my slasher heart, I loved all of that stuff. I love the kills. I love the brutality. I am not... I am not against, despite how pitched and childlike this voice might sound, I am not against watching a sleazy, exploitatious, grimy film. However, with this particular movie, there are certain moments that I'm just like, apparently there's an uncensored version of this film that has never came out. It can stay out. It doesn't need, I don't, I think the, the version that we have is fine. I, I don't want to see the uncensored version. I think the gratuitousness is fine with what we have. Um, I This is a hard film because watching it, like if you asked me the first viewing, I would have said, yeah, I like this movie. Where did you watch it at? So I watched it on Shudder. Shudder, same here. Okay, okay. This was actually one of the first films I ever saw on Shudder when I got the Shudder subscription. So this is the, that was the first time I ever watched it. I was like, oh, I have this underground films that I can now watch. So I remember the New York Ripper being like one of the first few films I watched with my Shutter subscription. I'm torn on it. I, it's like, I love to hate it. If that makes sense, but I don't hate it at the same time. I don't like Fulci particularly as a filmmaker. Um, but I do think that this one is one of his more better films. <laughs> but also, I'm not a Fulci fanboy at the same time. Right. So uh, it's like a kind of spoiling. <laughs> Depends a- on your mood. Depends on your mood. It's kind of like I love the kills. Love the kills. Love the brutality of the kills. I am all here for that razor scene. Love that. The razor tit scene. Here for it. Um. I'm here for the violence of it all. I'm not here for the bar scene. I'm not here for the the porno sex scene. Um, like I get it's an exploitation film. You're literally supposed to take tropes and just exploit it. But mm, yeah, yeah. So right. it's it's a it's a it's a mixed bag for me. It's like I am half and half with this film. I'm glad that you pointed out those particular scenes because those are the ones that rubbed me the wrong way. So thank you for mentioning the, <laughs> mentioning those. With a runtime of 93 minutes, The New York Ripper includes a body count of five victims. I'm not counting the dead body at the very beginning of the movie in which we only see a hand, and I'm not counting the death of our killer, Peter. 
With a brutal murder taking place every 18 minutes, this film could be considered a joyless exercise in extreme gore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for the exploitation fans, it's for the hardcore slasher fans, it's for the torture porn fans. In its bones, New York Ripper is basically a routine giallo with a grimy urban murder mystery. But it's really light on the giallo. Yeah. It came out during the slasher era, which means the focus is less on the psychological beats and more on the visceral violence. Mm -hmm. However, I am really intrigued by the structure of this film. Rather than tread down the usual whodunit path, we're clearly shown halfway who's preying on these women, even though it's a dream sequence. That's very Fulci. Yes. That was very interesting to me that he had this like Jalo slasher. Outsider's Perspective, New York City, Fochi Dream Sequence. The New York Ripper lacks a protagonist in a traditional sense. Those who return are either shuffled in the background to serve as a point of view for the victim, and they meet a grisly end at the hands of the Ripper. Or they have no importance that is apparent until late in the movie, pretty much too late to really matter. Virtually everyone has in some way been corrupted. They're not very likable, and those who are innocent manage to survive, but they hardly escape. Like, we have Faye at the very end where she is innocent. She's in this relationship with a killer, and she doesn't realize it. The film cleverly upends everything you think you know, because, again, it's a mixture of all of these things, and you don't really know what you're walking into. I do wish that the film included more of a police procedural aspect and a stronger through line of the motive of her killer. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a straight-up slasher and gory, this is a film for you. Additionally, the film's final moments are very heartbreaking. It kind of stinks that it doesn't really mean much because <laughs> they didn't allude to it from the beginning. Yeah. It would have hurt even harder if we had maybe been introduced to this daughter, not even having seen her, but just acknowledged that she exists. Exactly. You know, some form of way, I think it would have made the, because I, every, every time I saw her, I was like, we just got introduced to you five minutes ago. Yeah. And it's 10 minutes from the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this like heartbreaking scene that's accomplished with, no knife and no blood and that's another very surprising aspect of the structure of the film there's a bit more to new york ripper than just like splatter and sex but i wish that those aspects were more ingrained throughout the film featuring haunting location photography of a city that no longer exists the new york ripper is perhaps the ultimate examination of urban decay and individual isolation worsened by modern metropolitan living dylan as jolly of the month club's resident slasher expert i'm sure that you have a lot to say about new york horror and slashers yes shockingly um i've only i've been to new york city a couple of times I love it personally, but luckily I wasn't alive around the 70s or 80s. So, you know, it's a lot more um, uh, touristy <laughs> these days. Uh, <laughs> so um, I was surprised when I made this list of like some New York slashers, that, particularly that I have or New York. Just I first thought about just I want to know after New York slashers, just New York horror films in general. 
And I noticed there was a lot of a common thread where they kind of all sort of deal with the isolation of, you know, like you live in this big city, but no one or how you no one around you really knows what's going on because everyone is just consumed by people. So I found that aspect very, very interesting. And even when writing this list, a lot of these films all depict everybody's just sucks in New York. Like everyone just sucks in New York. Obviously, everyone thinks of Maniac and Drastic. Mm-hmm. Like those are the two top dogs that are immediately going to come to your mind uh, when you think of New York slashers, horror films. You think of Maniac and you think of Dress to Kill. Also, American Psycho, a much different, tonally much different film than yeah, 90s. That's a very that's like purposefully isolated. Then you don't know what's reality and what isn't and yeah. Also stars the woman of my dreams, Reese Witherspoon. Um, so just gotta had to throw some some little bit of Reese in there. Reese, if you're listening, hit us up. Hit us up. My DMs are always open for you. I also put in one thriller that's not a slasher, and I do think it does a great job at implementing the fear of living in a big city, isolated alone, and that is Wait Until Dark, uh, the Audrey Hepburn film. I think that that movie is one brilliant. So if you haven't seen it, I think it's streaming somewhere um, like Tubi or something like that. Highly, highly recommend checking that out. Um, it's a, it's more of a home invasion film about some people who think that who realize that she's taking their drugs by accident. But she's a blind woman and she doesn't know. So it's a I did a little Googling. Um, Wait Until Dark from 1967 starring Audrey Hepburn is available right now on HBO Max. Good for y'all. You should definitely go watch it because HBO Max is actually a legitimate streaming service. And you can watch Dune. You can watch Dune as well. Watch Dune. Finish it off with um, Wait Until Dark. There you go. And then I've been saving these two for last, personally. Um, A more modern slasher that I feel like also does a really good job at capturing the sleaziness that I think also the New York Ripper does. Midnight Meat Train, starring Bradley Cooper. And it's in that Bradley Cooper era where he was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm kind of here for that era of Bradley Cooper. Or I love Midnight Meat Train. I like that one as well. I, I feel like I saw that and like no one else saw it. That was like kind of like a, a sleeper, like low cult movie for a while. And now and then Bradley Cooper is now like this huge actor. But back then he was who knew who like no one really knew who he was. I love that film. I love how Bradley Cooper is a struggling photographer trying to make it. And it's one of those films where it has that brutal violence that New York Ripper has. Like the gore in that movie is intense. It is very gory, but it also depicts the sort of underground, like disgusting world of New York. Like anything could be going on underneath the streets and you wouldn't know about it. Like you are, you're sleeping above what could possibly be the most horrific thing in the entire world. I love all that depiction of in throughout that film. And it's a full blown slasher. There's so many brutal kills in that movie. I love it. When I was doing the research, I own it. And I was like, cause I remember buying it. It's a blockbuster movie. One of those <laughs> you buy a blockbuster. Uh, I think that's how most people saw it. Um, and it's what I was like, Oh man, I'm going to have to rewatch this movie now. So like I have put it on the watch list. It's, it's skyrocketing. Nice. Um, and then, of course, you can't talk about New York Slasher and not talk about the top daddy of them all. My 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 child, my love, my love of my life, 
Friday the 13th, Jason takes Manhattan. The best I knew it. minutes in all of that movie. Yes, that movie is called Jason Takes Manhattan. Yes, it's only a 15 minute long sequence, but it's cinema at its, at its, yeah, at its yeah, yeah. core. Jason just not killing a single soul in all of New York, but trying to get to a boat. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Here for it. Awesome. I knew that was going to be on your list. I knew you were going to talk about that one. Yeah, no, uh, Friday 13th is my favorite film franchise. Anytime I can talk about my boy Jason, I'm going to talk about my Jason. Wow, that was really interesting. I think the through line with the New York City films and it being like isolation. Yeah. Isolation, you don't know what's happening right under your nose, which is, of course, interesting because it being such a populated city and all the apartments are right on top of each other and it's constantly under construction. And it's such a an interesting theme throughout these films. And you normally would a, a, a company that I feel like with most Southern slashers or like the isolation of being out in the South and living out in the middle of nowhere. So it is really cool to try to watch filmmakers take that same approach into a massive city like New York, where like you are never alone, like you are feet away from people. So the fact that like, even when you have that type of mentality and like someone could literally be getting stabbed, but that's just the norm as well. So it, it's very chilling and scary in that regard. And I do think a lot of these uh, particular films, particularly Maniac, I think does a very good job at depicting like we don't care mm-hmm. mentality. Like whether you're watching the 1980 version or the Elijah Wood remake, both versions of that do a great job at just depicting like you could be literally getting stabbed in bright daylight public and no one's going to notice Like, they're just going to find your body in the dumpster. I'm so glad that you mentioned Maniac, because that was one of my flavor of the month picks. So I'll just go ahead and just talk about it right now. (laughs) I luckily wrote two for that, because I had a feeling one of us was definitely going to be picking Maniac for flavor of the month. William Lustig's Maniac. I am irresistibly drawn to comparing Maniac to the New York Ripper. Two years separates these films. Both are set in a version of New York that focuses on the filthiest corners of the city during one of the viler periods of time. Both depict acts of cruelty against women. Neither is a film that is much fun to watch, so I don't I don't know if I would necessarily watch both of them back to back, but Maniac at least feels like it has a little bit of depth and purpose, mm-hmm. more so than New York Ripper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree with that assessment. Um, I would say if you had to pick, if you were like, oh, man, which one am I going to put on? I'm absolutely going to put on Maniac. Uh, I think uh, New York Ripper is a cultural one and done staple to see the impact that Fulci had as a filmmaker. You know, if you're trying to go through the Fulci filmography, I think New York Ripper is uh, a must watch in that regard. If you're going through his filmography. Um, But yeah, I think uh, Maniac, as probably the best depiction of loneliness, mental like deterioration of living in New York City, especially just with that main character. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Maniac. Even with its crazy ending, it's like traumatic ending or whatnot with the whole bed scene and all that stuff. <laughs> I still think it is a brilliant, brilliant film. And the remake with Elijah Wood is done in a more like artsy kind of way, but it's also sleazy and exploitation and violent at the same time. And 
dare I say, it's Elijah Wood's best performance, and you don't even see him in the movie half the time because it's all POV practically. I just feel like if you want to watch a more polished version of New York Ripper that doesn't completely degrade women every five minutes, um, I feel like Dress to Kill is a little bit better. Um, it's easier to stomach. Um, it's beautifully shot. I mean, it's De Palma. I mean, the man knew how to, at that time of his filmography, at that time, I don't know what he's doing now. Um, I can't explain it. But back then, he knew how to, he knew how to shoot and set up and make things look absolutely gorgeous. And I think that that movie is, I love that movie. Um, I love that movie too. I, and I love the episode that we did on Jolla Month Club on Just to Kill. That's a really good movie. So yes, Just to Kill, I would recommend that one as well. And I feel like it has, that the killer's like motives, like, you know, like who's this killer? It has that very jalo like feel and vibe and it hits all the all the beats that you want, but it also does depict New York City as this scary, hellish type of place. Um and I, I love that. I, I, I think uh I feel like if you want um it's not as consumed of the city of New York like New York Ripper is, but I do think you do get the the same sort of like the big city man. That's where all the crime and murder is happening. <laughs> that's why you need to stay in the South, you know. <laughs> I could see my parents because I I've all I live in the North I live in North Carolina, so deep deep South where you know your population of 900 people. Um, in 2010 so like growing up you hear horror stories about new york and then they you have these films like dress to kill they're like see there you go there you go you're trying to scare you straight (laughs) you're like no you just made me a cinema fan (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly so i wish that i had a little bit more of a deep cut for my other flavor of the month pick but I wanted to go more of a like slow burn, less gory New York City film. And it's one of my favorites by a horrible filmmaker. Let's, is that the theme of like <laughs> this episode? Um, Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby. I feel like that's such a slow burn. It's definitely, it has that isolation feel and that loneliness. A little bit more of a polished New York City. That's one of my all time favorite films. And I think it will be, you know, a good, pairing with the New York Ripper uh New York Ripper second I say watch Rosemary's Baby as kind of a a lead in it's slower it's less gory and then get your New York Ripper on yeah exactly I would I would absolutely um double feature it the same way I would say if you're watching Rosemary's Baby and you want to keep going you could follow that up with Black Swan Another New York sort of psychological thriller um, that kind of taps into the more upper classmen of New York trying to make it or break it with, you know, you know, you have the whole like because you have that another reason why New York has that sort of Hollywood place where people move here to get rich and be successful and thrive. And you have you're playing off the fears of that while also dealing with the sleazy Harvey Weinsteins of the of the dance company world and stuff like that. So. So I told my partner that I would include at least one upstate New York movie within my picks. Shout out to Binghamton, which is where my partner's from in upstate New York. But I didn't have much luck besides a quiet place. I could not find 
upstate New York horror. So, listeners, if you're aware of any upstate New York films, not just not filmed in upstate, but like they actually take place in upstate New York, please send them to me because I am very, very interested and I would like to watch some upstate New York horror. I feel like there's got to be a bunch, but I also can't think of any. And I didn't even think of, about A Quiet Place until you mentioned I'm like, yeah, no, that is upstate. For me as a Southerner, almost everything feels upstate. So like, like if it's Maine, I'm like, well, that's upstate, isn't it? Like, like Camp Crystal Lake. Camp Crystal yeah. Lake, that's upstate. That's so, upstate. Like, so for me, like, I, I mean, I would like everything would be upstate, but I, I can imagine, you know, living up there like, no, that's not upstate. Yeah. So, yes. Again, listeners, if you know of any upstate New York films, please, please, please send them my way on Instagram or Twitter at Jollo Club or Jollo of the Month Club at gmail.com. Please and thank you. Dylan, I know this is your time to shine. October is the spooky season. You're hitting those TikTok recommendations every day. You're watching at least 31 horror movies. Is there anything that you would like to plug or promote while I have you on Jollo of the Month Club? Yes, I'm very easy to find. I am on all social media platforms. You can practically type in either slasher movie reviews or slasher reviews, and you will find me because I am very active on social media. I'm on everything from Twitter to Letterboxd to Instagram. Um, I have YouTube. I've been doing YouTube for over 10 years. Uh, I started in high school, so it's just crazy to think. And I am even on the good old tickety tickety talk talk. So TikTok, I'm even on that. And surprisingly, I am doing very well on TikTok. I am very blessed of the life that I now have on TikTok. And I have been doing a 31 Days of Horror over on TikTok where I've been not only recommending horror films over there every day, but I've also been doing little horror skits and stuff. I think, shockingly, TikTok has been pushing my videos very well. October 1st, and it's the 25th, the day that we're filming this, I have posted over 30 videos. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, they've been all been doing very well. I've got some that are even doing like 45K. And I'm like, thank you for that. Um, need that validation. So yeah. What's your TikTok username? Uh, slasher Reviews. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Slash Reviews on pretty much everything except Instagram and YouTube. It's Slasher Movie Reviews. Uh, the movie is in the middle of it. Um, but pretty much if you type Slasher Reviews, you're going to find this Southern pitched voice smiling face you know also my photo is the same for everything it's me and Reese Witherspoon <laughs> hell yeah Reese I know you're listening slide yeah. into Dylan DMs even yeah. though you're married but we can still be friends you know what's also the cruel the cruelest trick the devil ever played is that Reese husband and I share birthdays she is married to the wrong Leah let me tell you that you're born in the wrong hospital when I saw every July 27th, she gets on her Instagram and she thanks her hubby. And I am like, this is the cruelest and meanest joke I have ever seen in my life. Oh, I'm dying and over here. I, was like, I am the biggest Reese Witherspoon fan. Like, I will watch the, all these exploitation films and all this stuff. But if you put on Sweet Home Alabama or Legally Blonde, I am there and I am watching it like a hawk. Those are like comfort films. Wherever you consume, I am on it, and I am always active, so I'm easy to reach. 
yes, please follow Dylan on all of social media. So we mentioned this movie in the middle of this episode. If you'd like to find out more about James Wan's inspiration behind the supernatural thriller Malignant, you can listen to my interview with him right here on Jollo of the Month Club. We're talking James's horror roots from Saul to The Conjuring, along with the Jollo influences behind Malignant. Yep. And if maybe they need an outsider's recommendation, I listened to it, and girl, you killed that interview. That was the best, like, 15 minutes. I was, like, so impressed. And I was like, this girl is, like, literally interviewing James Wan, and she's keeping it together. Like I am not, I'm still not over malignant. I'm just, I don't know if I'll ever be over malignant. I literally close my eyes, like, even though I've been watching a lot of stuff, please note that even when I'm at work working, I'm watching Malignant in my head. Like, I have not stopped thinking about that movie. Like, I'm obsessed with it, and... Listeners, send me all of the Gabriel Halloween costumes. Gabriel is literally the spokesperson for my mental health. (laughs) Like, after all that we've gone through these past two years, I have made Gabriel the spokesperson for my mental health. And I'm upset that, you know, malignant part two hasn't been greenlitted. Like who do I need to talk to in Hollywood? Like I will write a blank check for that. Like, what do we need to do? Cause Gabriel, <laughs> oh, what a, that's, we talk about cinema. That's malignant is cinema. Have not seen anything as beautiful as malignant this year. And I, I was shocked. Like, everything I thought that movie was going to be was not what I was expecting it to be. And I'm so much happier with what we got than what I was expecting. And I was like, it's not really, it's not a Jalo film, but we all thought it was going to be a Jalo film. But I'm totally happy with what we got because it was the B-movie trash that we never, and like, James Wan was like, oh, we're going to do that. I want to yeah. do that. It's like, And I love that. A filmmaker who has scared the living shit out of us with Conjuring and Insidious I felt like he realized he reached his peak. And so instead of burning out, he's like, I'm going to make a dark castle, trashy, 90s, 80s, early 2000s, just over the top craziness type of movie. And I am here for that. I'm here for it. And uh, if you haven't seen Malignant, I will praise it to the high and mighty. You'll hear about it all when I post my top 10. Because <laughs> I already know that that's been graved in stone. It's Amazing. Not- Yeah, so please listen to my interview with James Wan discussing Malignant. If you're also looking for another short episode that has some recommendations, please listen to my Fantastic Fest Roundup episode, which includes my five favorite films from the festival I attended virtually this year, but I got to watch a lot of great films. So again, Malignant episode, where I have Wade Brown on and we're doing a debate on if Malignant is Jollo or if it is not Jollo. James Wan Malignant Interview and Fantastic Fest. Those are my three most recent episodes. I have Jollo the Month Club pins for sale, three different sizes and colors. All information can be found on Instagram. If you would like to purchase or if you have any questions, please email me at jolloofthemonthclub at gmail.com. The podcast logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. You can find Vegan Patches Etsy shop at Retirement Funds. Theme music is by Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. You can follow myself, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at DianaNK. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Jollo Club. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and you like what you hear, please give Jowl of the Month Club a five-star rating. Dylan, thank you so much for being here virtually. It was great hearing you talk about films that you love. You're so passionate about slasher films and horror, and you really know your stuff. This is your time to shine. You're living your best life, and I am all here for it. Oh, thank you. It's just also it's just great to see you again. Like even if it's virtually, normally we see each other every September, but the world is still in shambles, so I can't wait to hang out again, drinks and all that fun jazz. Thank you once again for having me on. I will always be on. There's no reason why I will not be on. I I love coming on and talking all things horror. Listeners, if you have any slasher recommendations, well, slasher slash Jalo recommendations for a future episode with Dylan, please let me know. As always, I'm your host, Diana Koch. I'm Dylan Toman of Slasher Reviews. You've been listening to Jalo of the Month Club. <laughs>